Today, I want to think with you about how the imagination can be a force for transforming the world as we emerge, when we emerge from this global pandemic. And, you know, uh, you mo most of you here are older than I am so, and have long memories and know that even though the crisis has been going on a year and is very grave, there will be an afterwards. Um, and we're at a moment, a very unique moment in history of all of our lives because we are dealing with a crisis. It's a global crisis. We have incredible tools to understand and watch that crisis play out uh, in real time. We have incredible tools that we're using today to communicate with one another. We have the tools to paraphrase the Caribbean philosopher Sylvia Winter to truly take responsibility for our species in a way that might not have been possible in the past, which is to say, we now need to make decisions somehow among 7 billion people about the future we wanna live in and the planet we want to cultivate because the planet is no longer something we live on. It's something that we transform and that is transforming us. My argument to you today will be broadly that the imagination is the most powerful and important force in charting the pathway towards that transformation. And that if we ignore the imagination, if we ignore the power that we have to picture alternatives, if we ignore the power of the imagination to give us the gift of empathy, where we imagine ourselves in the shoes of the other, if we give up the power of the imagination to allow us to travel to places we may physically never be able to travel to, then we will be locked into the patterns that brought us to this crisis. We know that the pandemic is of course something of a natural disaster uh, beyond the kind of conspiracy theories that imagine it was created as an act of the human imagination in a lab in Wuhan. It seems much more likely from the evidence that's been presented that the virus is simply a virus, a, an entity. I don't know if we could call it a form of life. Those of you who are interested in microbiology, we could have an interesting debate about whether viruses are alive or not, but an entity that has been with the human species since before we were humans. In fact, it's an elemental part of the life of this planet, perhaps of the universe, the virus form. So we can't say that we are responsible for the virus, and yet we are responsible as a species for the outcomes of this virus. We are, as I will describe later in this talk, dealing with a situation where certain populations, simply because they happen to be born in the wrong place at the wrong time, with the wrong string of numbers associated with them in their bank accounts, are much more likely to die, to suffer, to have the forms of inequality that plague them get worse. We are also in a situation where those of us who happen to be born in the right place at the right time, by no talent of our own, but simply by the great lottery of the universe, are now the beneficiaries of the rollout of vaccines, have been protected in various ways from the ravages of the virus by our government and by our communities. And yet even in the same space, blocks away from our, each other, uh, we see that the effects of the virus are extremely differently felt and extremely differently um, experienced. I work here in Thunder Bay with two community activist groups. One of them is called Window de Buemo Sewen. The other is called Not One More Death. And both are dedicated to charting and challenging 
the ways in which uh, systems and structures of our society adversely affect indigenous people, thanks to 400 years of colonialism. And what we've noticed in doing work with people on the street, uh, in talking to specialists, in doing our research, is that of course, here in Thunder Bay uh, is a tale of two cities in many ways. The, that indigenous people are suffering the incredible adverse effects of this virus at a much higher rate. The statistics coming out of the United States indicate that uh, coronavirus kills four times as many indigenous people as non-indigenous people uh, proportional to population, which is a really a staggering number in the richest country in the world. And those statistics are likely not altogether different in Canada. Not because of course the virus has any preference to uh, reproduce itself in certain bodies, but because certain bodies, through the patterns that our society has created, make certain people more vulnerable to an, a disaster that affects us all. Unfortunately, we have been, we've done a poor job in general as a society, and I would say even for those of us in Thunder Bay, a poor job as a city, of recognizing this. And I want to open this talk in some way by suggesting uh, and I will come back to this a little bit later, that that is a problem of the imagination. It's a problem of how we imagine the world together and imagine our places within it. It's a problem of how we imagine our relationships and it's a problem of how we imagine our histories. So emerging from this pandemic, thinking about the post-pandemic imagination, there is one way that we need to think about what future do we wanna to create together. But then the flip side of that is we need to recognize that our imaginations have been shaped by the world that we've grown up in. And this is of course not a stunning revelation, I'm sure to many of you that, you know, depending on the society in which you grew up, depending on how you're educated, depending on who your community is, who you know, who you're taught to respect or disrespect, your imagination as an individual will be shaped by the society of which you're a part. So, in the po in emerging from this pandemic and thinking about what will come after the pandemic, I'm interested in what are the limits on our imaginations? What limits will we need to break through together and individually to be able to imagine the world that we inhabit together? What limits of the imagination will we need to break through in order to be able to envision another world to come? Because ultimately, as we emerge from this pandemic, there is a perhaps once in a generation opportunity for our species to switch gears and switch directions. And in a moment of runaway climate change, uh, that is, of course, more important than ever. Um, let's see here. So I'm going to speak to you today about three topics that are connected. I'm going to speak to you about the power of the imagination. Uh, and this will be the most perhaps kind of conceptual part of my presentation. Uh, the second, I will talk to you about the perils of the imagination, these limits that I spoke about a moment ago. And finally, I'm going to speak to you about the promise of the imagination. And specifically, I'm going to speak to you about the promise of the imagination as I see it being expressed by youth, young people today. And specifically, even more specifically, I'm going to present to you three forms of social movements that in my research I've found youth to be very enthusiastic about and really leading the way in to help us imagine what this post-pandemic world will look like and to challenge our imaginations towards that goal. And so let me be a little more specific about what I'm going to um, argue in each of these sections and I'll come back to these as well. 
The imagination, I will argue, is the most powerful force shaping society and the fate of our species today. Um, and we ignore it and its peril and, and its power at our peril. I'm gonna argue that the organization of the imagination, which is something I'll describe in a little more detail in a moment, presents a grave threat to the world and its people. That is to say, in other words, the way we have imagined the world, the, the, the forms and the templates uh, that we have brought into this pandemic, if we do not challenge them, will present a grave threat to the world and its people because it will allow these systems and structures to continue that have led us into this moment of climate change, of uh, unequal um, susceptibility to viruses and so on. And finally, I will argue that youth are organizing to challenge the way we imagine the world. And they're not only challenging how we imagine the world through their ideas and their voices, they're actually challenging the way we imagine the world through their actions. And indeed, I'm going to argue for you that what young people are doing today is not simply imagining that the world could be a nicer, better place. They're actively experimenting with different ways of imagining the world together and then putting those imaginations into practice. And I think this is an extremely uh, vital and important activity of what I call the radical imagination a term I'll describe to you in a little more detail in a moment. So let's begin with the power of the imagination. I've already in some sense indicated to you my enthusiasm for the imagination as a force. And in the next few moments, as we go through this first section, I'm gonna try and describe to you how I see the imagination as a social force, not just something in our individual minds, but something that we share and why it's so powerful. And as I've already indicated to you, um, I think that in this moment, especially a moment of global telecommunications, a moment of global crises, Focusing on this power of the imagination is incredibly, has an incredible amount of potential for us. So we are accustomed to thinking about the imagination as something that occurs in our individual brains. We are accustomed to thinking about the imagination in some ways as like a kind of like mental living room. You know, we, we go into our imagination sometimes and have a daydream. We go into our imaginations and many of us uh, return to traumas we've experienced in the past. We go into our imagination to think up those of us who practice art uh, and other forms of creative expression. We go into our imagination to find inspiration and for guidance of our intuition. So we've been taught that the imagination is something that exists sort of inside our brain and it's ours and ours alone. Um, and But this is contradicted by two um, forms of knowledge that we have. One of them is neuroscientific. Neuroscientists who study the imagination are very confused because no matter what part of the brain gets injured, no matter what part of the brain gets taken out in the process of surgery, and no matter how many tests they do on the human central nervous system, they've never been able to locate this thing called the imagination. That in and of itself is quite interesting. And what has led is neuroscientists to say that perhaps the imagination exists throughout the brain. It's not a particular quality of this or that lobe or quadrant or section of the brain. It's actually more or less describes how the brain works together 
how signals pass through the gray matter, through our senses, through our sensing body, through our nerves that extend all through our bodies. It is something that describes, in other words, it's a term that we use to describe the gestalt, the whole, rather than any particular part of the brain. Other neuroscientists argue that perhaps the imagination is an outdated concept because it doesn't refer to anything in the real world. It might just be a concept that we developed in the 18th and 19th century, and now it's no longer fit for purpose. I, however, think that it's much more useful to think about it as something that exists throughout the brain. But more importantly, and here's the second uh, innovation in thinking about the imagination, it becomes increasingly important to recognize that the imagination is something that exists not within each of us, but between all of us. So when we think about the imagination, we are, in a sense, thinking about the way that this quality of mind exists in a kind of network. And I'll give you an example, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples that maybe help explain this concept. And again, I apologize that it's a little bit abstract at this point, but we're, we are trying to imagine the imagination. So necessarily it's gonna be a little weird. Um, imagine that all of us in this room are together in person and let's say we're gonna build a house, right? Or if you prefer, let's say that we are all here together and we're running a huge nursery of children of many ages, and we have to decide how to educate them. As we decide how we're gonna build that house or how we're gonna build our curriculum together for education of children, we are going to communicate with one another. And we're gonna communicate with one another using language, but we're gonna communicate our ideas about what the house could look like, or we're gonna communicate our ideas about what those children could become. We are gonna use our imaginations and through our communication in designing the house, in designing the curriculum, we're gonna, in a sense, to use a terminology from theoretical physics, we're going to entrain our imaginations. We're gonna align our imaginations. We're gonna bring them into a kind of alignment with one another. We are in a sense, though we will each retain our own capacity to imagine, we are going to have a shared imaginary. We are going to imagine together what the future will be. And even if we don't necessarily agree on every aspect, we're going to, in some sense, bring our imaginations into a kind of concert, uh, into an orchestration. You might think of an orchestra where each person is playing their own individual instrument with their own individual style, and yet they are playing from a common score. But the difference here is that it's maybe more like improvisation. We're improvising the score together. And any of you who play music with one another, you know, jam or improvise, will know this feeling of sometimes coming into alignment with another person. We might say that that is in fact also has a lot to do with the feeling that we have when we're in love, when two imaginations align, perhaps. It happens in fact in all aspects of our lives. That's what education is. That's in fact what is happening right now as I communicate to you, your imagination and my imagination and all of our imaginations align along certain lines. My general point to you here, uh, though the complexities get of course fascinating, is simply that when we think of the imagination, we need to think beyond just the faculty of mind, the particular individual mind, and think about the imagination as something we share. Now, this becomes especially important when we start thinking about power, and when we start thinking about society, and when we start thinking about uh, economies, because ultimately we are a cooperative species. Humans rarely survive and even more seldom thrive 
in isolation from one another. People who go into the woods and live like hermits, it's true, a few people do that. And for some people, that's definitely the right choice. But most of us, I assume, because we're all here together on Zoom today, didn't make that choice. And that's probably because we like the company of other humans. Um, similarly, none of us today built the computer that allows us to communicate with one another. None of us, well, maybe some of you, I hope, I hope so, after you, maybe after you heard Charles speak the other day, none of us grew the food that we're eating. None of us harvested the cotton, the wool, and refined the petrochemicals into the clothes that we're wearing. None of us built the house that we're living in. Maybe some of you did, I, again, but you, didn't, you certainly didn't harvest all of the materials. So ultimately, to be able to live a social life as a social species, we rely on each other. And in this world that we inhabit together, this highly complex, technologically advanced world, we are extremely reliant on a division of labor in society. So some people do each of those jobs. Some people harvest materials, some people grow food, some people design computers, some people mine materials out of the ground that get turned into computers. We live within a vast network of mutuality. And I wanna suggest to you that we have to think about this web of mutuality, what Martin Luther King called this web of mutuality that ties us all together as something that we're always imagining. And, and, and central to this pro, uh, process of how we cooperate together is the imagination. Now, this is fairly easy to see if we're all getting together to build a house together. That's a fairly small network of people who are working together. We can all see each other. We can all meet face to face. We can all coordinate our imaginations together. You know, similarly, if we're designing a curriculum. Now imagine that we as seven to eight billion humans need to coordinate our cooperation together and we need to imagine together. Obviously, that's gonna be very difficult to do. It's gonna be very difficult to do in the same way that we would build a house together or design a curriculum for our children or grandchildren together. And so we rely on structures of the imagination. We rely on stories that we tell each other about our relationships to one another. We rely on shorthands, on images, on ideas that mean that we can coordinate our activity with the other 7 billion humans on the planet. But of course, when I say cooperation in this context, those many of you in the audience are probably already noting that this is maybe a bit of wishful thinking. Because of course, when we think about who makes our clothes, who digs the materials that went into our computers, who uh, grows the food that we eat, this is a scene of vast inequality um, on, on scales that humanity has actually rarely seen in its history and extreme exploitation. Most of the food we eat is grown and harvested by migrant workers in Florida or the United States or countries that have been rendered very poor by the global economic system such that we can have strawberries in February. Our computers are made in extremely exploitative conditions from the children who dig coal tan in the Democratic Republic uh, uh, in the Congo to uh, the people who solder it together in China to the forms of inequality that exist within even the retail economy at the store where we bought our computers. And likewise, the clothing industry is extremely exploitative. We've just recently uh, heard and the Canadian government has taken action in some way on the production of cotton in Xinjiang in China, uh, which is, being, which is uh, using forced labor of Uyghurs 
but we know that that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's a long history of exploitation in cotton industries and other textile industries from the production of the materials themselves to their refinement. So how is it that we live in a world where we as a cooperative species are cooperating as we must to produce the necessities of life, but we are cooperating on such vastly unequal uh, bases. We'll come back to that question in a moment, but uh, I need to go on a little bit of a detour first. Imagine now for a moment, I'm the king uh, and you're all my servants or my underlings. And imagine that uh, I basically tell you what to do. Most of you are peasants. Some of you might be nobles. You, you, know, you might be like my inner circle, maybe three or four of you. The, the, let's say the organizers of this talk are my like nobility, but the rest of you, the vast majority, the hundred of you or so, or hundred households who are connected here, you're all just peasants. You, you grow food and my nobles come and take that food twice a year and leave you with barely enough to eat. And if you don't give it to them, they will, uh, you know, arrest you or kill you or whatever. This is kind of the model of feudal Europe before the advent of capitalism and colonialism and Europe's global expansion. What keeps me in power? Well, on a certain level, it and what keeps those nobles in power too? On a certain level, obviously, it's violence. They will do you harm as the peasants if you don't comply but you vastly outnumber us. So what is it exactly that keeps you from rising up and transforming this system beyond just violence? Any regime that relies on violence alone cannot last. It's a very expensive proposition. And also it leads to a lot of problems. If I'm the king and I constantly arming and sending my nobles into the field to harass and, and exploit, Eventually, those nobles who are very well armed and used to war are probably going to turn on me. Ultimately, in order to maintain my power, I need to orchestrate your imagination. I need to make you believe that it's not only the violence that keeps uh, you, the workers, from rising up against me, the beneficiary of your work. It's in fact that I am an inherently superior being, perhaps God or the gods I'm, maybe I'm their son, actually. Or maybe I was bestowed with certain objects and mystical powers. For instance, if I'm the Pharaoh of Egypt, it's my right and my duty and my ability to make the sacrifices necessary to the gods of the Nile River to ensure the returning cycle of the flooding of the plain. So without my work as the king, as the Pharaoh, uh, the agricultural uh, world will collapse. Maybe I could convince you that, uh, you know, without me, the gods would be angry and destroy everything. So this is a maybe a sort of um, hypothetical way of saying that any system of power relies on the imagination. It relies on this shaping of the imagination, this organization of the imagination, or orchestration of the imagination to ensure that the vast majority of people who do the work and don't benefit from their work are compliant with the small minority of people who control most of the wealth. That has been the case for a great deal of human history uh, in many different civilizations, in many different ways. 
Uh, one of the great benefits that meant that we enjoy in the territories currently called Canada is that indigenous people who had a very different way of organizing their societies for the most part, who tended to organize their societies in egalitarian and democratic fashions have managed to survive and fight back against 400 years of colonialism and have a living memory and living practices of what it means to live without hierarchies. This is an incredible gift that uh, we're only now beginning to learn to treasure that we can learn from these societies as we try and imagine what it would mean to transition our own society away from these forms of vast exploitation and inequality towards something different. However, that is a very difficult task with 7 billion people on the planet. Some might say it's an impossible task. I would disagree with that. The main point I wanna bring across to you is that ultimately, the imagination shapes society, shapes specifically the economic aspects of society. Who will do the work? Who will reap the benefits? The people who benefit have a vested interest in shaping how we imagine society and how we imagine power. They want us to believe that the system we live under is inevitable, that it cannot be changed, that it has always been this way because it fundamentally serves their interests for us to believe that. And they want us not to think, they want us not to imagine, not to use that imaginative power of empathy to make common cause with one another, to recognize the suffering of someone else. And this has been the case in systems of power throughout human history, unfortunately. Ultimately, how we imagine ourselves and how we imagine one another will determine how we cooperate with one another, how we work together. If we go back to the example of building a house together or designing a curriculum together, if I assign myself the king and say that whatever I say goes, and that's the way things are going to happen, and if you all comply with that, then my imagination of how this thing should be built is going to shape not only what gets built, but also how each and every one of you cooperates with each other. I'll say, you go into that work team, you go into that work team, you build this, you build that. That will determine how you cooperate. And here's the flip of that. As you cooperate together, whether you think of yourselves as peasants or people designing a curriculum or people building a house together under my domination, the more you cooperate in the way that I tell you to cooperate together, the more your imagination will be shaped by the way in which you are cooperating. So the more you cooperate in the way I tell you, the more your imagination will be shaped by how you cooperate, which is to say you will begin to think that the way you are cooperating is normal, that it's necessary. You will build an entire mental world around that form of cooperation and justify your place in it. And if I'm a very smart ruler, I will break you into hierarchies. And I'll say some of you are better than others. Some of you are better than others because you're men and not women. Some of you are better than others because you're white and not dark skinned. Some of you are better than others because I gave you a rank. Some of you are better than others because you went to the thing I call a university and some of you didn't. If I can create divisions and hierarchies which allow some of you to believe you are better than others, then I can use divide and conquer tactics. But ultimately what I'm suggesting to you is beyond just the course of power of my military force or my thugs or my police, whatever name you wanna give them, 
What matters is that I tell you how to cooperate and based on how you cooperate, you imagine that's the way the world is and the way the world is meant to be. And I don't have to do much work at all. Now you might say, but what is the power of the imagination to challenge that? And we know from history, of course, that uh, many people have used the imagination to challenge uh, the social order. Many people have, there have been a long history of slave uprisings throughout human history across many civilizations. There have been great movements of peasants to throw off the yoke of oppression. There have been movements for racial justice. We are in the middle of, or perhaps nearing the end of, we can hope, the end of a massive feminist revolution, which has gone in the span of many of your lifetimes from women essentially being second-class citizens who are not allowed to fully participate in society or the economy to achieving uh, not yet equality, I would say, but something that approximates equality. And we've seen incredible strides in this. We are seeing a great movement of liberation from people who are rejecting the gender binary and saying they no longer wish to be known as simply male or female, and that maybe those categories were never accurate to begin with. We're seeing a great racial justice movement in our moment where indigenous people here in this part of Turtle Island and black people in this part of Turtle Island and people around the world are rejecting their second class status and their susceptibility towards violence. So what then is the role of the imagination in this? Are we just fated to take the roles that were assigned by the powerful? No, of course we're not. The imagination, in the words of the French philosopher Cornelius Castoriadis, is like a magma, a magma like lava that is the underneath the plates of the earth. All of the plates of the earth, and those of you who are on Thunder Bay can see the residual evidence of this um, in, in our landscape here, in, the in what was created by volcanoes millions of years ago. The earth itself is the product of this lava this magma, when it dries and hardens into rock and becomes a habitat for biological life on which forests grow, within which animals evolve. This magma of the imagination stirs underneath society. And we take the hardened residue of that magma as real, as eternal, as a thing that's always been. And yet underneath, always is the radical imagination. Underneath each of us and within each of us is this power of the imagination that threatens always to erupt. It's usually a power of the imagination, to paraphrase the philosopher John Holloway, that begins with the simple word, no. That I do not accept that this needs to, this is the way it has to be. I don't accept this state of affairs. And if you hold on to that no, you begin to realize and you begin to question why the world is the way it is, the social world that humans have created. And if you follow that thought to its conclusion, you can go either in one of two ways. You can say that, well, maybe there's something eternal or essential about human nature that is now manifesting itself in the way that we organize ourselves. Or you can go another way, which is to find the source of that magma underneath and say that in fact, the world such as we have it, such as we share it, our form of cooperation, what we imagine is something that has been created by humans. And so therefore we could create something else. Uh, 
And so ultimately the radical imagination is this kind of tectonic force that like the magma underneath the earth's crust moves and shifts, it travels around the world, it travels between different continents on which we're all floating. And yet of course, unless we live in a volcanically active place like Iceland, we rarely see that magma and it's, you know, uh, the, the historian Robin Kelly uh, has studied the radical imagination as it exists in the African diaspora, the Afro-Atlantic diaspora over the last hundred years of great uprisings against uh, the res residues of the slave system that led to, for instance, Jim Crow laws in the United States, incredible rates of health inequality, wealth inequality, uh, and, and uh, violence against Black people here on Turtle Island or North America. And he points out that the radical imagination that has sustained movements of Black liberation over all of those decades of that century has not simply been emblematized in the ideas of great thinkers. The radical imagination, he suggests, kind of ricochets or echoes is perhaps a better term between not only thinkers and philosophers, such as the great W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the greatest thinkers of the American-African diaspora, but also echoes in strange ways off of the work of artists, visual artists like the Black Surrealists, or off of the work of musicians who are experimenting with the imagination in the realm of music. It echoes off great spiritual leaders, for instance, Martin Luther King, or great political leaders like Malcolm X. And most importantly for Kelly, and this is a point to which we'll return at the end, what sustains the radical imagination is not only the incredibly brilliant, perceptive, sensitive, and imaginative work of these thinkers, these musicians, these artists. It is the way in which those ideas emerge from and also resonate throughout the grassroots. Because again, to transform the imagination, it's not enough to just think something differently in your own private brain. It's about how we cooperate together and cooperating differently. So the civil rights movement and the black liberation movement was not only about the ideas of these great thinkers. It wasn't only about the imaginative flights of John Coltrane or of Thelonious Monk about whom Kelly writes a great deal. It's not only about the words of Martin Luther King or the actions of the nation of Islam or any of these other signposts. It's actually about how those, those uh, crystallizations of the imagination for liberation emerged from the grassroots, from whom uh, rose these leaders, these imaginative leaders, and then how those ideas came then to speak back to the grassroots, to those unsung, unknown, often, often forgotten activists on the ground, activists at the level of organizing protests, but also activists in the realm of education, who are teaching young people in different ways, activists at the level of um, uh, care, who are thinking about how to organize their communities in different ways, activists at the level, of, again, of the arts, of challenging how people see the world, how they perceive the world. And so my general point here is that when we think about the imagination, we have to think about it as a tool in the hands of the powerful that maintains their control over how we cooperate, but the flip side is that it is also and always a tool in the hands of the oppressed through which they envision how the world could be different. And that envisioning, that drawing on this magma of the imagination 
can take many different forms, just as the same underground um, pool of lava on which our continents rest might sprout up in different places across that continent in ways that don't at first appear connected. Or if you prefer a more recent uh, biological metaphor, we can think about the way that mycelia, that is mushrooms, what we know as mushrooms, are networked under the ground in webs of mutuality and connection only, and that we, uh, given the scale that we have as humans, you know, being between usually four and six and a half feet tall, can only see in the forms of their fruit, the mushrooms which manifest on logs. But really each mushroom is not a single organism. It is in fact a representative or a expression of a huge network that is feeding on and feeding from the entire ecosystem of the forest. We've had to spend a little bit of extra time on this presentation because we are uh, in this part of the presentation because I've had to get through some of the conceptual apparatus. I hope it's, it's made some degree of sense. I'm going to move through the next two parts of the presentation a little more swiftly because I think they make a lot more sense now that I've done maybe some of the groundwork for you. The, I've spoken about how the imagination is something that is orchestrated by power and powerful in order to um, command and control uh, those of us who are um, under its spell, ultimately. And this leads me to the second argument of this presentation, that today the organization of the imagination presents a grave threat to the world and its people. And I'm gonna identify for you three structures of the imagination, three organizations of the imagination that are extremely powerful in our world, but are in fact, as we are learning increasingly, arbitrary and unnecessary. The first in some ways, the most important is money itself. I love this cartoon. Um, I studied finance for many years, not as a person who's interested in how to make money. In fact, I usually am very good at losing money, not making money. Um, but as someone who's interested in how finance works, the financial sector that caused the great collapse of 2007, 2008, which wiped off billions of dollars of wealth off the global uh, ledgers. And yet what really happened there? Essentially, a bunch of already imaginary money disappeared. And my question studying finance and financialization is, if we as a species are capable of creating billions of dollars of imaginary money and obeying that money, thinking that that money works in the world to buy goods and services, of what else could our imaginations be capable? The, the cartoon here, for those of you who don't have great uh, vision, is, says, yes, the planet got destroyed, but for a beautiful moment in time, we created lots of value for shareholders. There's a businessman in a tattered business suit lecturing a bunch of children around a fire in a cave, and on the cave wall there are cave paintings of skyscrapers. Um, little gallows humor for our moments of climate crisis. Already many of you are familiar with the idea that the money that we use on an everyday basis, the coins and the bills, is largely imaginary. Obviously, there's no practical use in the world for a $5 bill except to be used as money. It can't be eaten, it can't be smoked, it can't be used, you can't build a house out of it. And similarly, coins are not even made out of gold and silver, they're made out of nickel mostly and zinc sometimes. 
Um, so these are not particularly useful items, and yet we bestow an incredible amount of power on them as a society. Essentially, we give those items value through an act of the coordinated imagination. And it's not just money that we have that we carry around as change. Ultimately, the cash that exists in the world represents only somewhere between 1% to 3% of all the global money. The other 97% at a, at a conservative estimate is basically digital. And of that digital money, which circulates around the world, only about 5%, maybe 7% of that money, any of us will ever touch. 90, around 90 to 93% of the money that circulates around the world is basically traded between massive financial corporations between one another, such that today the amount of outstanding money in the world exceeds the gross domestic product of the entire planet Earth by a factor, depending on which estimates you believe, of between seven and 700. There might be as much as probably more, 700 times the money in the world as the stuff in the world that money could possibly buy. We could get into a large discussion and I'd welcome questions around this perspective around like, what, what does this mean and what is money and how is money changing? How are we experiencing new forms of money and cryptocurrencies? But the main point I wanna to suggest to you is that we are living in a structure of the imagination we as a species have created. And that structure of money as it is now experienced in the economy in which we live, has dramatic and dire consequences. Because of this thing we call money, because of this thing we call the economy, we are consigning millions, billions of people around the world to die and to suffer, simply because we have determined, for reasons that don't actually make a great deal of sense, that they don't have enough of this imaginary substance we created to justify them getting enough nutrition. We've decided, for instance, that in order that governments around the world can compete in this thing we call the economy to have enough of this thing we call money that we imagined, we are not going to take sufficient action to curb carbon emissions, which is going to cause climate change, which we know is going to cause massive flooding in coastal zones. It's going to cause desertification. It is going to displace, by the end of likely my lifetime, potentially up to 100 million to 500 million people who will need to leave their homes and move elsewhere, perhaps becoming climate refugees. And we've done that essentially because we insist on the power and the unquestionable power of this orchestration of the imagination, this organization of the imagination we call money. And indeed, all of our lives and the way that we cooperate with one another as a human species of 7 billion people is largely orchestrated by money. People go to their job every day because they're being paid, not usually because they love it. And how we access the fruits of other people's labor is through money when we pay for a good or a service. So we are in the thrall of a form of the imagination that the pharaohs of ancient Egypt or the feudal lords of, of, of medieval Europe could hardly have even imagined. The second structure or organization of the imagination, which I see as incredibly dangerous today, is also one that we have invented in recent history, and it is the invention of race. Now, human difference exists. Humans are different from one another. Every human is different. We know that. 
from our basic experience. And humans who come from different regions of the world have what we call phenotypical differences sometimes, which means that they look different. There is no scientific evidence to suggest that uh, those who look different have different mental capacities. So the idea that because your skin or your physical features present in a certain way, um, somehow influences your behavior or your capacities to contribute or your intelligence is completely bogus. There is no credible scientific evidence to prove that. What happened in the 19th century and the 18th century was that Europeans, as they expanded around the globe, specifically Western Europeans, began to colonize other countries, including Canada, and began to need to tell themselves a story and tell those whom they dominated a story of why they were inherently superior. They needed to do the work that I suggested that the feudal lord did or the pharaoh did to explain why they were naturally destined to rule and why those whom they ruled were naturally inferior. And to do so, they invented a structure of the imagination, a story called race. Race, properly speaking, doesn't exist. And yet like money, it does exist. It doesn't help us to simply say money doesn't exist. Of course it does exist. And race exists, but it's not because of the features of what an individual brings to the table. Race and the idea of races only exist because it is an incredibly powerful story about how humans are different from each other. But it is an incorrect story about human difference because it fundamentally is based on the idea of a hierarchy. And today, we hopefully all recognize that all humans are equally, have equal capacity in terms of their intellectual capabilities, or at least our intellectual capabilities and our disposition towards certain behaviors depend on a whole multitude of factors, none of which have anything to do with the pigmentation of our skin. And yet, because we built a world on top of colonialism, and because colonialism was based on a theory of race, that was imagined. And because that theory of race situated whiteness and white people at the top of that hierarchy, we are today haunted by its ghosts. We are today haunted by its ghosts and some of us are more haunted than others. For me, it means that as a university professor, nobody in my class has ever said to me, uh, when you talk about race, you have an ax to grind, you're angry, you are not, um, you know, you're not impartial, you're biased. I've never been questioned about why I should be a university professor. No one has ever mistaken me in the halls of the many universities I've lectured at or worked at that I am the cleaner. Nobody has ever automatically distrusted my claims to being an expert. Maybe they distrust after they hear me talk and think it's nonsense, but they've never automatically thought that simply because of the color of my skin. I've never had to fear that I will be uh, followed in a grocery store and will be immediately distrusted. I've never been uh, arbitrarily pulled over by the police. And when in my few interactions with the police, I've never had to fear for my life with the exception of times that I've been at protests. Uh, there are a million and one ways that because I've been born into what is perceived to be white skin, I am the beneficiary of this imaginary construction we created generations ago and which haunts us still. 
The third structure or organization of the imagination that is, I think, particularly dangerous in our moment that I want to speak to you about is the border, and particularly the border of the nation state. We are living in a moment now when, and you can see these statistics for yourself, the vast majority of humanity will not get access to the COVID-19 vaccine for months, if not years, simply because they happen to be born on the wrong side of an imaginary line. There's no difference between me and my son and them and their sons. No fundamental difference in the human species. If we wanna ask who worked the hardest in the last couple of centuries, there's no way anyone can tell me that the people of Vietnam or uh, Nigeria or um, Peru worked less hard than my ancestors. It's simply the fact that the rich countries of the world uh, became rich through the labor of other people, through the through colonialism and its its residual effects, and they've used that power in order to keep the poor countries of the world poor. And when it comes to a global crisis like this one, or the global crisis of the um, climate the climate calamity, which we are now approaching, certain populations are rendered more vulnerable than others. Any ethical approach to being a species of 7 billion people has to contend with the imaginary structures of borders, most of which were only drawn 100 or 150 years ago by European imperial powers to divide up humanity based on basically an abstract bird's eye view that served their interests. We are at a point where we no longer have the option of the species as acting simply through the structures of the nation state and saying that the citizens of this country will get this and the citizens of other countries will get that. We no longer have the option. The, 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 the threats that we've created for ourselves are now so grave that we need to find ways to cooperate differently. And to the extent that we continue to sequester our imaginations within this structure of the nation state, within this structure of the imagination that says that these lines are consequential and that somehow people who exist within the lines of one space are more entitled to life and happiness and wealth than others, we will reap the whirlwind. Nation states exist for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to go to war with one another. And to the extent that we continue with the kind of brinksmanship of international politics and refuse to cooperate as a species, we will go to war with one another to the extent that if we continue the path that we've set out in this pandemic, where something as important as creating a vaccine uh, is organized and orchestrated solely by the nation state with an increasing degree of distrust of international institutions like the World Health Organization for all of its problems, we are going to create greater crises for each other, for ourselves. There is a probability that because the vast majority of the world's population will not be vaccinated within the coming months or years, that is an incredibly large Petri dish for this virus to mutate beyond the capacities of the vaccines that now countries like Canada are hoarding. That is a grave challenge we face. There is also the grave challenge that if we continue to organize around climate change with this idea that each nation state will do what's best for its own private economy, we will create a condition that spirals out of control, out of the control of even the richest nation states. So we need to somehow move beyond this orchestration of the imagination that suggests that these arbitrary lines are forefathers 
drew on border uh, on on a map of the world need to be the way that we organize human life and human cooperation. And so we come to the third and final section, which I will move through fairly swiftly because I've now set up um, most of what I think will make it make sense. Now we move to the promise of the imagination. It should be three. Youth are organizing to challenge the way we imagine the world, not only through ideas, but through their actions. And I'm gonna come back to those three perils of the imagination that I mentioned before. I wanna point out that young people today in their activism, and I study activism and young people's activism as part of my work, are rejecting money as a way of organizing society. They're rejecting borders and they're rejecting race and racism as ways of orchestrating our human cooperation. This is a post that was created by the artist Fabiana Rodriguez um, based on the slogan, no human being is illegal. And around the world, there is an increasing amount of activism among young people in defense of and in solidarity with those who cross borders. This is a form of solidarity that insists that it is not legitimate or acceptable that we suggest that some people who cross borders simply because they don't happen to have a piece of paper or should therefore be susceptible to police intimidation, to deportation, to the tearing apart of their families. These activists on a broader level are rejecting the idea that we should even necessarily have borders. That if we truly accept that every human being has, is equal on some fundamental level, then separating people by borders is a terrible thing to do and only serves to justify and legitimate the worst forms of oppression and exploitation. These activists are suggesting that we need to embrace the fact that as a human species, we now have to take responsibility for cooperating anew. And that means imagining things anew. And that means imagining a world beyond the structure of the border. That doesn't mean, and these activists are not suggesting, that we should give up our cultural differences with one another. Those cultural differences are beautiful and need to be preserved and sustained, but they are suggesting that all cultures evolve and change, and they evolve and change and get better as they interact, as they mingle, and as they meet. And that that interacting, mingling, and meeting happens when we give up this obsession with the border and obsession with controlling people's movements. Those of us who are born as Canadian citizens enjoy incredible power of movement around the world simply because we've been issued with a piece of paper with the queen's signature on it called a passport. That is a freedom that all people should enjoy regardless of where they're born or who they're from. We enjoy the ability to go and spend winters in Florida when it's not COVID, to travel around the world, to experience new cultures and to come home and share it. That's a joy that should be shared among everyone. And if we're truly serious about embracing our fate as a human uh, species, uh, we need to think about ways of doing that. Fundamentally, around the world, millions of people are taking this power into their own hands. They are crossing borders without the proper permission. They're crossing borders in order to make a better life for themselves and for their families. They're crossing borders to experience new things. They are, in, they are uh, exercising the human right to move. And young activists today increasingly are heeding this call that no one is illegal in order to challenge the structure of the border and the nation state that has put our species at such jeopardy. Another form of activism that is extremely prevalent among uh, young people today is anti-racist activism and specifically anti-racist activism that is not only about changing the ways that we think and imagine uh, people and their differences, but thinking about 
material change. And so we saw about a year ago, just before the pandemic, thousands and thousands of young people in Canada rising up to support Indigenous people in their struggles to say no to pipelines and major infrastructure projects which threaten to ruin the earth. In doing so, young people are not only standing side by side with Indigenous people and saying enough to 400 years of colonialism. They are also, when they stand together on barricades, when they defy the police, when they interrupt business as usual, saying, we demand the right to create new relationships with one another. We are rejecting a society that pits us against each other based on this fiction of race. We reject the hierarchies that we have been educated into. And instead, as we sit here and block this road or this train track or this pipeline, we are going to come together and form new relationships with another. We are gonna cooperate with one another differently. And through our cooperation on these barricades, we are going to imagine what life could be like in the future together. Finally, young people today are rejecting capitalism en masse in a way that we have not seen for almost a century. Capitalism is a system that is dominated by money and that organizes the human species in its global iteration through money. It is a system that cares only about the production of more and more money. And it's a system that divides us as humans based on how much money we have. Young people today are saying they want something different, something fundamentally different. They have no nostalgia for the old forms of communism or socialism of the Soviet Union or Maoist China. They learned the lessons from those past experiences and yet they are still saying the system of capitalism that we have needs to be abolished. We need to imagine a way of organizing our cooperation as a human species beyond the rule of money. If money, this imaginary substance, can control and command and orchestrate our cooperation as 7 billion people, of what else are 7 billion people's imaginations capable? And I think these young activists and what gives me a great deal of hope about them realize is that when you're talking about imagining an alternative to that economic system, an alternative to that system of cooperation that is so coercive and so unequal, it's not just about sitting around your dinner table and having a good idea. It's not about waiting for a visionary to come and give you all of the answers. It's actually about practically experimenting in the here and now with different ways of cooperating and living together. And so we are seeing among young people a massive wave of unionization of workers coming together, young workers to say, we reject being constantly exploited. We're seeing young people come together in new ways on the internet and in real life into new forms of communities to support one another around issues like mental health or around issues like surpassing and moving beyond the gender binary and identifying and loving one another and building community in new ways. And we're seeing a massive wave of young people starting to form cooperatives using the newest digital tools to try and imagine how we might cooperate together, form new enterprises, new ideas, new methods of working together that fundamentally see themselves as the building blocks of a future society. It's not enough to just envision that society we have to build it now. We have to become the citizens of the global world that we want to create or to be the change that we want to see in the world. To paraphrase Gandhi, close with this slide. 
from the great science fiction novelist Ursula K. Le Guin, who wrote in a lecture near the end of her life uh, a couple of years ago, we live in capitalism and its power seems inescapable. But so did the divine right of kings, like I spoke to you about before, the divine right of the pharaoh or of the feudal lord, who suggested that and organized everyone's imagination around the idea that they were fundamentally superior. That's never been the case. Now we have a once in a lifetime, in some ways, opportunity to reject those structures of the imagination. And I think young people are showing us the way. Thank you.